Not sure how many of you have seen that video before, but it occurs to me when we when we get involved in uh, new things, uh, there's a learning curve. But when we stay with familiar things, there's a tendency for us to get stuck. Now, with science, we can get smarter every day. It's a great name for a YouTube, especially by uh, a rocket engineer. But with faith, we can actually get stronger every day, depending on how we exercise or use our faith. But the gospel will likely, at some point, create disorder in our lives because it challenges us to unlearn our culture, unlearn our privilege, unlearn our self-sufficiency, our training, our bias. Sometimes our Christian thinking, that is our worldview, or our response to the gospel simply gets in a rut. Have you been there before? Have you experienced this? Oftentimes it feels like being just spiritually dry, or maybe you feel like God is distant, or somehow that your prayers hit the ceiling and don't go any further. But let me ask you this. What if, if we were to try and break out of this rut, this spiritual rut, what if trials are a good thing that help us grow? Instead of despair, we listen. Except that most of us try and avoid trials like the plague. Let me ask you this. What is surrendering our need to win, to be right, or to look, um, look good is actually a good thing? What if the gospel reveals a bias or a lack of concern? Is that not helpful? What if new life means dependency rather than self-sufficiency and autonomy? What if our church had a growing, caring presence locally because that's simply where you live, not the location in which we all gather? What if you are part of God's salvation, even though you think you don't have all the right words or you don't have the right time or you don't have the right temperament to go engage people talking about a living faith? Reprogramming our Christian faith can be really hard, especially if we were raised in a system that holds up church attendance as the main demonstration of one's salvation. Now, don't get me wrong. I think gathering to the church as a church is absolutely critical. However, I'm concerned it produces more church attenders than disciples who respond to the call to go out into all the world teaching and baptizing and obeying. Those are the things that were part of the Great Commission. See, the gospel is the vibrant good news of God's reconciling, caring, restorative love in the most tangible and eternal ways. Now, to help frame this good news, I want to take a story-oriented approach to understanding how the gospel um, illustrates and impacts people's lives and how they were changed. So I'm picking different moments where people had what I would call a salvation encounter or a new normal. It interrupted them. And there was a moment of disorder, but then it became uh, a new way to live with greater amounts of freedom and abundance. The story I'm thinking of comes to us from the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles or you have an app 
Open your Bible to Acts chapter 8. Rather than me flipping screens back and forth, I want to read up out, right out of my Bible and along with you. But there's this encounter with an Ethiopian eunuch that Philip has. And the, 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 the question that the eunuch asks is, when, when Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, well, how can I unless someone tells me? He has his own way of thinking. He's an educated man, except he doesn't comprehend scripture. Does that sound familiar? He's reading the Bible, but he needs help understanding. He was spiritually hungry, but theologically starved. He was wealthy, he was well-traveled, he was educated, and yet he was a complete outsider to this new way of God. Now, I have to just stop and say this. Every Wednesday morning for the past year, there's been a couple of us who meet for a Wednesday morning Bible study at um, Jason Zuniga's shop in Central Austin. At 7 a.m., we gather around a table. Now, Jason and a business partner, they've just been hosting a study. And when I say a Bible study, it's we open up the Bible, usually go through a book at a time, and we just read maybe up to one chapter together. But there's been a couple of other workers that have sat in with it because they've just simply been invited. One guy, John, started coming, and he would have said that he was an agnostic, that he didn't believe in God. But he had just had this uninitiated outsider approach because he was never raised with it. Through this Bible study, John comes to a living faith. He comes to a salvation point of actually saying, I I accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. But here's where his questions were. We were having our Bible study in December, and he was clarifying. And he literally was saying, now, let me just get this straight. Christmas is, it's, it's about Jesus' birth? He was asking the question, and we're like, yes. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of the Christ child. Well, then he asked, well, how does someone go to church? I mean, do they, do they need to be invited or can you just show up? And so the question I have for you is, what, who is it that you're praying for? Because there's people like the Ethiopian eunuch or this young guy, John, in his 20s, who are asking the question, how can I unless someone else tells me? How can I unless someone else shows me? Now, Read with me in Acts chapter 8. I want to just kind of briefly go through uh, the whole chapter and then zero in on the part where Philip shows up with this Ethiopian eunuch. But in Acts chapter 8, it says this, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, who had just testified before the religious establishment, talking about, you guys killed the, the Messiah, you guys killed the guy who re was resurrected from the dead, and they're like, oh no, we can't have this guy. And so they killed, but they, they mourned for him deeply. Um, but Saul began to destroy the church. Saul is the guy who becomes the apostle Paul. Um, and he dragged off men and women, men and women, and put them in prison. Now, Philip was in Samaria. It says, those who had been scattered preached the word of the God wherever, wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. 
When the crowds heard that Philip, uh, <clears throat> crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs that he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. And with shrieks, evil spirits came out many and, uh, of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in the city. Okay, here's the picture. Here's the backdrop. The religious establishment, even though they had done away with Jesus, they were still being threatened. Their economic privileged positions were threatened. And only the most severe persecutions targeted men um, and women. And they're throwing both men and women in prison and beating them. And the, question, the, the thing that it sticks out to me is when persecution breaks out, people are desperate for good news. But here we find both oppression, that is persecution, and great joy. Because joy always offers hope, regardless of the circumstances. Now, skip down to verse 26. This is where Philip meets up with the Ethiopian. And he says these words, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip that, <clears throat> to, that go get on the road, the desert road that goes down to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury. He's the CFO of this queen called of Kandake, the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. So here's this picture. It's likely not a spoken word, but he's got this prompt, like what we would call a kairos moment, where it's, an, it's, a, it's a sort of check in your spirit. It's a kind of urging for you to turn toward or turn away. Philip gets this urging that he's supposed to talk to this outsider, and he listens to the prompt. And when you read the story, I don't want you to read your, into that you're the eunuch. I want you to read it as maybe you're Philip, with God nudging you in a particular direction in your neighborhood or in your workplace. Now, Here's a couple of things just to give you the backdrop. Most people would have walked. The more well-to-do would have rode animals, but only the very wealthy would have had a chariot, not to mention his own personal scroll of Isaiah. This was a man of elite wealth, and the chariot was more likely not something that you would see out of Ben-Hur uh, or, or like a military chariot. It was more likely a four-wheeled covered carriage. Again, only the very wealthy. Now, in verse 30, it says this, Then Philip ran up to the chariot, and he heard the man reading the uh, prophet Isaiah the prophet, and he asks the question, Do you understand what you're reading? And the guy answers, Well, how can I, unless someone explains it? And so he invited Philip to come and sit with him. So it was the customary practice to read aloud. See, in our individual or 
independent culture, we have made um, Christianity to be a very privatized faith. We talk about a personal relationship with Christ, but faith was always a communal expression. So people would often read aloud, even if they were by themselves. Well, the eunuch had been to worship in the, te in the temple in Jerusalem. He'd come from Africa to Israel and is in the temple. And now he was reading likely what he had heard, but he didn't quite understand it. Have you ever been to church and you're driving home going, I wonder what he was really talking about? <laughs> the eunuch was a churchgoer and yet he had questions. He was uninitiated and not part of the community and he clearly stuck out. Let me read for you a couple more verses. He says, and this was the passage. The eunuch was reading the passage of Isaiah, and it says, he was led like sheep to the slaughter, and the lamb before the shearer is silent. And so he did not open his mouth. And in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who's the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with the very passage of the scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Here's what's so significant. The Jewish writers often made assumptions about how biblically literate their hearers or their readers knew of the context of the passages they cited. And so when Isaiah writes, he writes that's understanding that this would be the Messiah. But someone from Africa coming in from the outside, even though he's educated, has no idea what he's talking about. Now, let me just say, I, Pastor Dave, since I'm not biblically literate enough, I had to look up the passage of Isaiah to figure out what was so captivating that Philip could explain that this text would capture the heart of an Ethiopian. So I go to what he talked about in Isaiah 53. And he talked about, and he was quoting from that, but then he said right before that, and again, I could only imagine, he, he began to explain the whole passage. And he says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin, our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. Now, what I think is interesting is if you go to just a couple of chapters, and I think Philip was explaining what Isaiah was getting to, not just in a couple of verses. Philip had a kind of understanding where this is what jumped off the pages and captured the imagination of this Ethiopian eunuch. Because in Isaiah 56, just a couple of chapters later, listen to what he says. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord, is surely, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath or who will worship me, who chooses what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than the sons and daughters, i.e. of Jerusalem. 
I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, I, I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Ha! God declares and he welcomes the eunuchs and the Gentiles. Now, all of us sitting here today of not of Jewish descent should celebrate that because we all find ourselves as an outsider looking in. Even if you've grown up with privilege, even if you've grown up as a native in America, you are an outsider looking in when it comes to the gospel story. And he declares there's room. Why is it so significant? Because central to what it meant to converting to Jerusalem required circumcision. But he's a eunuch. If you've already committed to being a eunuch, you're pretty much disqualified from being circumcised. And yet, in the writings from centuries earlier, Isaiah is saying good news can still come when those of you who have chosen another path can find your way into God's salvation. He's just come from the temple. And if you're not familiar with what the temple in Jerusalem, there were outer courts, five to be exact. There was the courts of, of the Gentiles, the courts of the women, the courts of the Jewish men, the courts of the priests, and then the Holy of Holy, which was reserved for the covenant and the high priest. He must have felt those concentric circles like, I'm always relegated to be an outsider looking in. And he collides headfirst into the gospel message, and it changes his life. So for those of you who have felt like you're beyond the reach of God's acceptance, if you've ever felt like you're somehow disqualified by guilt or regret, or even if you felt underwhelmed by the promise of God, you need to hear this because this, this is good news. For the eunuch, the gospel makes God's love accessible. Once he was a cultural and religious outsider, now he gains full acceptance into a community of faith. And I think that's good news. This made faith entirely compelling that no amount of riches or education or class standing could ever afford him. See, when you and I struggle, I think I tend to go to God is not always my first resort. I tend to go to what am I able to do? How am I able to problem solve? What financial resources do I have? How can I employ my charm or my education to get stuff done? But what happens when those things aren't enough? The gospel was always supposed to be a vehicle to cross social divides. And instead of dividing, the gospel can and supposed to unify people regardless of gender, regardless of culture, regardless of race, regardless of your education and your social class. 
And so he comes to this new understanding, even though he had come from a different continent, gone to this sort of hierarchical worship where he could never get close enough. And now he experiences what Isaiah was really trying to say through this passage because Philip listened to the prompt of the Holy Spirit. And it says this in, uh, in verse 36, back in Acts chapter eight. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave the orders to stop the chariot. And then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. So he came to some water, most likely a stream of some kind, most likely that they had some kind of water gathering of maybe because it had rained earlier and but to complete the experience, he finds water and he asks to be baptized so that he could mirror Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to the newness of life. That's really what we're celebrating, a public declaration of an inward commitment. And most converts to Judaism were immersed in a way to wash away their Gentile impurities. Thus, the official here understands that in contrast to the previous ability, inability to convert to Jewish faith, he's now being welcomed as a member of this new Jesus movement. Have you ever been on the outside looking in because of your gender, because of your social class, because of the color of your skin? Have you ever been told you're not one of us. Have you ever been dismissed or disqualified because you didn't somehow fit expectations? This is the power of the gospel, making room, removing barriers, and overcoming any of your human limitations. So it's interesting to ask, well, who is this story really about? I tend to read a lot of scripture uh, and I, I, I like to insert my role, uh, my personhood into the role of the protagonist, not the antagonist. But who's this story about? Is it about the Ethiopian or is it about Philip? Well, obviously it's both. And there's both to be learned, both we can learn from. But at first glance, it feels like this is about the eunuch coming to faith, wanting to be baptized. But if you think about it a little further, Luke wants you and I, to see what the normal Christian life of being sent into the world can look like. It's really interesting in just chapter 8, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives very little, comparatively speaking, he gives very little attention or detail to the persecution that's affecting everyone, but he really drills down on this story and gives you lots of detail about Philip's role in, in sharing the gospel with the Ethiopian. See, Philip was open to opportunity. That didn't make him an expert of the law. But here's what I, I've learned, that the more I put myself in situations that require God's wisdom, God's strength, God's courage, God's confidence, his strength is being made perfect in my weakness. 
As a pastor, I'm invited to these intimate places of people's lives where they come to me in the 11th hour and the 59th minute that we're getting a divorce. Can you help us? And I'm like, what do you say in that moment? Or when someone has just passed away and I walk in, I don't have words to give comfort, to help grieving, except I do have the hope that comes through knowing Christ. And I do have the power of the Holy Spirit to somehow guide me. And that's sometimes all I have in those moments. And the more I do it, the more surrendered I get to, I don't know, I'll find something to say. I've also found that the more I do handle delicate situations, um, the more delicate, comforting, and encouraging and poised I'm becoming. But it always starts out as intimidating, and I'm always feeling underqualified. But I want to grow spiritually. And so I need to be willing to put myself into roles and situations that actually require faith. And those situations for me do. Let me just close with a story that some of you might be familiar with. When I lived in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I was working largely with college students um, and young adults at the University of Alabama. And what I come to find as someone who grew up in San Francisco was that culturally it was worlds apart. And people were so, um, so exposed to Christianity and the church that it left them longing and underwhelmed. So we began a group on Wednesday nights meeting on campus called God Who. It was an open discussion on the purpose and or existence of God. I wasn't trying to convert anyone. What I was trying to do was simply give people a venue to talk about their spiritual questions, to express their doubts. Because what the testimony was is the church wasn't a place that was safe to express their doubts. And I would argue that when I was getting ready on those nights, it was so much easier to lead a Sunday school class. It was so much easier if I could just walk in with a bunch of people who already kind of thought the same as me. But to walk in where I was going to be challenged was such a stretching role. But it required faith. And I grew from it. And all I could think about was this passage. How can I unless someone else tells me? How can I unless someone else shows me? And so this was my attempt because I had read a book that was answering the skeptics' questions called Letters from a Skeptic. Um, it was three years of correspondence between a father and a son trying to understand the hope of the gospel. And so that became uh, a really life-giving time for me to simply make myself available and do it. And I would encourage you to live out of faith, not just out of your comforts and your confidences. And God meets us there. Can I just pray with us uh, in our time together? Our Father in heaven, I, I thank you for your loving kindness. I thank you that in each and every day, you put situations in front of us and you you're inviting us to turn, to sometimes turn away, to sometimes turn toward, but you're inviting us uh, to seek you in all things. And so I pray that we would be people of faith and that we would have a growing awareness of your presence in our lives 
I pray that you would um, give us the kind of confidence and the kind of courage that only comes from you, Lord. And you would do a healing work, a reconciling work, that our tribes would become local expressions of your church, where people can enter into community and understanding faith. I pray that you would give us a hunger for your word and a sensitivity to your spirit, that we might be people like Philip who just responds to the prompt and goes. And we might find outsiders looking on the inn who are still spiritually curious, but longing for joy and hope. May we be your agents of hope and justice and mercy and healing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.